Well, we are having, I've been enjoying, probably not as much this week as I have previous weeks, I've been enjoying leading us through this profitable, I hope profitable time, going through the book of Acts and the themes that we encounter in that book. This is edition number eight of Themes from Acts, and we're approaching pretty much the halfway point, I think, in our series, so we'll take a break around Christmas and then pick it up again for another six weeks or so after the new year. Have you ever played the uh, party game? I think it's called the telephone game. You know what I'm talking about here? Uh, That's the one where you put folks in a circle, and someone starts with a short message uh, uh, such as this. Here's here's what I came up with as an example. Tommy called and wants you to know that because he is left-handed, his old girlfriend Lulu decided he wasn't right for her and so left him for Caleb. Now, that person then whispers it to the person on his right, who whispers it to the person on his right, all around the circle, and then once, say, all ten people in the circle have had a chance to hear and then speak the message, you discover usually that the message was notably altered as it went from person to person with potentially hilarious results. Of course, if the message was a serious one and that message got distorted, it it might not be funny, but rather tragic. That's possible. Of all messages, the most serious one that I know of is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has been passed on from person to person now for nearly 2,000 years. And has it ever been distorted? Oh my, in so many, many ways. And that's far from funny. It is tragic. But what makes it even more tragic is that for us, we have easy access to the original message. So so really, there is no excuse in getting it wrong. The very first Christian sermon delivered by Peter on the day of Pentecost, that first sermon, it's available to us. It's not on YouTube. Now, that would be really, really awesome if it was, but the record of what Peter said is provided for us in written form in the second chapter of Acts. In fact, Acts records numerous sermons by Peter and by Paul. We are not dependent on an oral transmission over 2,000 years like the telephone game. We have the reliable reliable writings of the physician Luke, whose history of the early church was received as Scripture by the early church leaders themselves. So today then, we dig into the book of Acts to discover the content of apostolic preaching. What did Peter and Paul actually say, actually preach. Let's take a quick look at some of the sermons, and we begin in Acts chapter 2. You remember that Jesus told the apostles that when the Holy Spirit comes, they would be witnesses of Him. So we might expect that the focus of the first sermon by Peter would be Jesus, and it was. It is. Acts 2, verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to get to death, but God raised him up again. Well, stop there for a moment. What do you see in those few verses? He speaks of the life that Jesus lived, the miracles Jesus did, which validated his claims, and then he refers to his death, the role of God in it, the role of sinners in it, the fact that he truly died, and then the the clincher, the astounding claim that God raised Jesus from the dead. It is this last point that Peter dwells on. It becomes the main point in his short 
sermon. Acts 2, we pick up at verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Quote from Psalm 110. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you can see in this first apostolic sermon the outline of the message we discovered throughout the book of Acts. And it goes pretty much this way. Verse 32, Jesus is risen from the dead. Verse 33, Jesus is now ascended and and is in His place of exaltation and kingship. Verse 36, Jesus is Lord. Verse 38, therefore, the conclusion, the punchline, you must repent. One chapter later, as a crowd gathers because of the healing of a lame man, we hear Peter again saying this in chapter 3, verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact of which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him, he has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. Therefore, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see the same pattern here, don't you? Jesus died, Jesus rose, therefore repent and believe in order that you might receive forgiveness and renewal. Same pattern is in Acts 5 and verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging Him on a cross. Verse 31, uh, after speaking of the resurrection there, it goes on to say, He is the one whom God exalted. Exaltation. Verse 31, the second part, to His right hand as a prince and a savior. He is Lord, verse 31c, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. So there it is again, repentance. A few chapters pass with no sermons, but then we come to the first message delivered to an entirely Gentile audience. And uh, it was identical, we discover, to what was preached in Jerusalem. Oh, he adjusts his message slightly to fit his audience, but the essential content is the same. He is stuck on the Jesus story, verse 39 of chapter 10. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with Him after He arose from the dead. The resurrection is the evidence, the proof of the message. But what is the message? Verse 42, 
He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. We don't just preach Jesus, Savior, on a cross. We preach Jesus, judge on a throne. Now, after chapter 10, it's Paul's turn. The sermons we read from that point on are by him. Paul is uh, different from Peter, but the gospel that he preaches, oh my, it is exactly the same. In Acts 13, Paul provides his hearers in Antioch with a little Old Testament history, his background, but when he gets to the heart of his sermon, here it is, Acts 13, having spoken of King David, Paul offers this, verse 23, from the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now look at verse 28. Although they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. He connects that to the Old Testament promises and then concludes in verse 38, therefore, the word therefore keeps popping up, doesn't it? Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Brothers and sisters, this is so amazing, so wonderfully beautiful, this gospel of Jesus, Jesus crucified, risen by the power of God, now seated in glory and offering to the men who killed Him forgiveness on the basis of repentance and faith in His name. The old, old story of Jesus and His glory. One more example from Paul's open-air preaching in the great city of Athens where Paul offers a more philosophical discourse that he brings around to the Jesus story. And here he says, chapter 17 of Acts, verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Now he turns the order around here and he says to repent first, but then look at why they should repent, verse 31, because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So this was Paul's introductory message in Athens, after which he spends additional days with them, elaborating on his message. So there you go. What do we see? The preaching in Acts focuses on the risen Christ, the exalted Jesus, more focus on His resurrection and Lordship, really, than on His death and His salvation, but they're both there. And in our next few minutes, we're going to break down three components of the message so that we ponder together the proof, the promise, and the punchline of the original and the only gospel. First, the proof. The apostles were apologists. They were those who defended the gospel, and they appealed to the reasoning of their hearers. Listen, our gospel appeals beyond the mind and beyond the reason, but it does not bypass the mind. When we proclaim Christ, we provide reasons why people would believe that He is Lord. The apostles, when they spoke to the Jews, reference Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus. In Acts 18, for example, we read of Paul in Corinth, verse 4 there, it says he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, verse 19, same chapter. He himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, verse 28. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. I hope you see that Paul was not asking people to take a mindless leap into the dark. He challenged them to think and study and to step into the light. 
Acts 17, verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So how did Christianity go from being this tiny Jewish sect to the greatest faith in world history? It was transformed on fire, men of God declaring boldly the truth about our Lord, and the Spirit bore witness of their veracity. Acts 9.22, Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus could not refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. With the Jews, Paul and Peter could open up the Old Testament Scriptures, and they did that with great effect, but to everyone, the apostles argue that Jesus rose truly from the dead. And that's the primary proof of his claims. In Athens, Paul said this, chapter 17, 31, he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. They reasoned this way. Before Jesus died, he told everyone that he is God, that he would rule the world, and that he would be killed and yet rise again on the third day. He also said his resurrection would validate his claims. And you know what? He did it. To the letter. Now, if a man can make his kinds of claims, live his kind of life, die his kind of death, and rise again, even naming the day, (laughs) I'm convinced. I am putting my trust in him. He's won that trust. But if you want to object, because I, I don't, you don't believe in miracles, you've got a problem because if you say Jesus did not rise again, you're stuck with having to explain how 12 men who wrote the bestseller in the history of the world, the apostles, how they could give their lives preaching a message that they all knew to be a lie. Friend, that's absurd. The resurrection is a fact, and no recognized religious leader ever claimed to be God. Not Moses, not Buddha, not not, uh, Muhammad, not Confucius, only Jesus. And for sure, only Jesus rose from the dead. If you are bothered by my use of the word proof, you feel free to replace it with evidence, but the point is that our message is grounded in history and in reason and the demonstrated power of God to change lives even as He raised His Son from the dead. Next, ponder with me the promise of the gospel according to Acts. Really, the, the apostles use a variety of terms and ideas to express what is offered in, in the gospel. Forgiveness is preeminent, but there's also the word salvation refreshing eternal life, even freedom. No, no promise, by the way, of an easy life or lots of money or family accord, but forgiveness and salvation and refreshing and freedom and eternal life, those, those sound pretty good to me. Let's look at the text. In Acts 2, Peter promises forgiveness of sins. In Acts 3, verse 19, repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. That sounds like forgiveness there too. Acts 4, Peter declares that in the name of Jesus there is salvation. Link that to forgiveness and you understand that the salvation to be salvation from sin and sin's consequences. Acts 5.31 refers to Jesus granting forgiveness of sins. Acts 10.43, of Him all the prophets bear witness that through His name everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. Is that clear enough? This is what our gospel offers because sin is what severs us from God and His blessings. It is our core, our fundamental problem. With that problem removed, we experience the other things promised in Acts. Refreshing, eternal life, freedom, real freedom, not the cheap variety like the world promises us. Acts 26, Paul says we go from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God, which is where real freedom is found. 
And you look at this one verse in Acts 26, Paul tells of his calling by God and how the Lord appointed him, verse 18 of Acts 26, he says, He appointed me to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. There is a lot there. In Jesus, we get to see more clearly. We get freedom from the one who hates us, and we get an inheritance that comes to us from our good, good Father. So that's the promise. We finish now by looking at the punchline, the prescription of the gospel, the prerequisite to get all that is promised. Pick your P word there, but the answer is crystal clear. There are two things one must do, but those two things, understood rightly, are really one thing. First, we will mention is to repent. In Acts 2, when Peter preached to the gathered crowd in Jerusalem, he reached a point where he declared in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Now when someone hears who Jesus is and then asks, what shall we do? The answer provided is worth heeding, and here it is, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent. He goes on to mention baptism as well. We have a whole sermon coming up on, on that. But the first word is the key one, repent. And we read it over and over again. Chapter 3, verse 19, repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. The repentance message continues through the end of Acts. When Paul describes the message he preached, he says this was his conclusion, chapter 26, verse 20, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Acts 20, 21, I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Okay, that last verse serves us well as a transition to our final point, which is that the punchline calls for us to repent, but also to believe, to have faith in Christ. So there we have it, repentance and faith. Our Westminster Confession identifies these as the necessary responses to the hearing of the gospel. The first class I ever taught, by the way, as a Christian teacher was on this very subject. Repentance and faith, both are clearly mentioned throughout the book of Acts. Sometimes it says to repent, sometimes it says to believe, and we see Paul bringing them together to summarize his ministry in Acts 20. Repentance and faith go together, just like leaving and coming go together. When, when you come to church, which you didn't do today, but when you normally do, when you come to church, what else do you do simultaneously? You leave home. It is essentially one movement, but it can be seen in two different ways. Repentance is turning from sin, leaving that behind. Faith is turning to Jesus and coming to Him. If you truly do the one, you truly do the other. In Acts 2, we read the crowd asking Peter what to do in response to the gospel they had heard, and he said, repent. In Acts 16, we see the same question. In the middle of the night, the jailer in Philippi asked his famous prisoner, Paul, this question, what must I do to be saved? And here is what he says, believe 
in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So let that sink in. So many answers one could give. But Paul says, believe, just as Peter said, repent. But elsewhere, Peter said, or Paul said, repent, and Peter said, believe. At the great church council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, Peter had this to say about the conversion of the Gentiles, the giving of the Spirit to the Gentiles. Acts 15, 9, he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. By faith. Do you know what the primary term Luke uses here, or uses in his book to refer to Christians? The primary term used to refer to the followers of Christ in the early church? Far and away, the primary word used by Luke is the word believers. This is the great divide, brothers and sisters. There are believers who have eternal life, who have forgiveness, who have freedom, who have adoption. They have an inheritance, and there are unbelievers who do not. So faith, belief. That's the critical issue. And when the gospel is preached, Luke records that some believed. When a person puts their faith in Jesus, everything changes. So how big a deal deal is faith? Without it, you have nothing. With it, you have everything. Repentance included. Forgiveness included. This is the gospel according to Acts. And 2,000 years later, we can check our message as well as that of others by this impeccable, this wonderful standard. Jesus is the risen and exalted Christ who offers to sinners forgiveness and eternal life as a gift which can be received by turning from sin and trusting in Him. That's the gospel of Peter. It's the gospel of Paul. It's the gospel of Jesus. It is the gospel of North Park Church. Praise God. So, Lord, we thank You for this clear word from Acts chapter 2 and beyond of how Jesus is lifted up and exalted in the message of the gospel. It's about His glory, His death for sinners, His resurrection, His exaltation, and His invitation to sinners to repent and to trust Him. And so, Lord, we would do just that today. Make us faithful witnesses of this great and awesome Word. Give us love, give us boldness to be witnesses in our day and in our communities. But, Lord, we pray that especially we and our children would believe this Word, that we would respond with faith, that we would respond to repentance and reap the blessings promised in Your gospel of forgiveness and freedom and life everlasting. We ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen.